we have a, a mantra which we really fundamentally think is really important, and that comes from Nelson Mandela. And it's a quote of his which says, education is the most powerful weapon by which you can change the world. And we fundamentally really believe that. If we can tap into the education systems, we can make a real difference. Welcome to Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Health and Years, the podcast where we talk with renowned experts from around the world about the impact they're making on the future of medical technology. Today, Managing Board Member Christoph Sindel talks to Dr. Suresh da Silva, founder of Radiology Across Borders, a global charity that provides education and programs in radiology to help save lives in developing nations. Dr. da Silva is a fellow of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists and also an adjunct senior lecturer at UNSW and an oncological urological radiologist. Dr. Suresh de Silva, I'm super happy and honored that you are with me now for this podcast. Thank you very much for joining late in Australia. I guess it's around eight o'clock now in the evening, so I appreciate your time. And I would like to cite here quickly a statement you made, which impressed me as a medical doctor very much. We believe that if you have the ability to save a life, you have the responsibility to do so. That's a very impressive phrase. And this phrase certainly struck me. So let me start off, Suresh, with the first question. You are the founder and director of Radiology Across Borders, which tackles global healthcare challenges like the shortage of medical professionals, access to care, and access to expertise. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization, its idea, and its purpose, please? Thank you, Christoph. First of all, I'd like to thank you also for the opportunity to come on your podcast series. It's very much appreciated. So Radiology Across Borders, the charity was founded in 2010. So it's, it's been now 10, 11 years since we started it. Now, the idea for it really came, I guess, from a healthcare perspective and also from a personal perspective. So if we look at healthcare, if you look at the amount of money that's spent in, for example, in Australia per person on healthcare, in 2016, it was around 4,350 American dollars. Now, if we compare that to our most closest northern neighbor, which is Papua New Guinea, that's $109 US dollars. Mm. And even if we take countries such as Sri Lanka, which are more advanced, but still classified as developing nations, we're talking around $390. So there's no way you can deliver the same quality of healthcare with such a disparity in income. And that really is reflected by outcomes. Now, One area that's close to my heart being an oncological radiologist is oncology. And if you look at the stats, every year there's around 10 million cancers diagnosed worldwide. And of those, around 7 million are in developing nations. And more importantly, 75% of those are incurable. And the reason they're incurable, in my opinion, is a combination of absence of screening, the absence of delivery of the treatments that they really need. Now, we can't address that by putting out money, but we can address it through clever technologies. And that's how we work at Radiology Across Borders. And that was one of the key reasons. 
But the other idea for it really came from a personal level, and that was opportunity. So coming from a migrant background, having been born in Sri Lanka and then migrating to, uh, to England first and then Australia, what I was given was opportunity. And that was an opportunity for a really good education. And I mean, my, my parents made a lot of sacrifices for that, but it enabled me to get to where I am now. And it gave me this indelible feeling that there should be a universal right to education. And those in the charity, the vast majority, if not all, share that same theme, that there should be a universal right to education. So education to us really lays the foundation to really help communities. So I guess the combination of those two points, opportunity and the global disparity in healthcare were really the reasons why the charity was founded. And in terms of the the purpose of the charity and the size of it, we help in radiology. Now, we all know how fundamental radiology is for healthcare. Um, in Australia, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it's, it's similar in Germany, that radiology is critical to decision making. Now, it doesn't matter if someone's coming through casualty or someone is being seen in the uh, general practice with a family doctor, imaging somewhere along the line fits in there. Without good radiology, you really don't manage patients as mm. well. And it's a fundamental part of medicine. And unfortunately, due to that disparity in healthcare, the delivery of that radiology does vary significantly. And we have a, a mantra, Christoph, which we really fundamentally think is really important, and that comes from Nelson Mandela. And it's a quote of his which says, education is the most powerful weapon by which you can change the world. And we fundamentally really believe that. If we can tap into the education systems, we can make a real difference. And that's what we do. So we educate, we provide consultancy, we provide infrastructure in radiology. And the aim is to really act as a hand up, not a handout, but a hand up to the developing nations we assist in. And the hope is that with the expertise we provide now, a generation from now, they can provide that expertise to their colleagues that follow through. So that really is the basis for it and what we do. And the charity has grown from two of us back in 2010 to over 100 Australian and New Zealand radiologists. And if we look at the number of volunteer radiologists from throughout the world, including a large number in Europe, including Germany, we have probably 250 plus radiologists who have volunteered. And we have a similar number of imaging technologists. And the number of nations we help continues to grow every year. So we have 12 nations that we consider a part of the RAB family, and they receive all our projects. Mm. And they are at presently in the Indo-Pacific. But we then have other recipients of the benefits, such as our international certificate, and they come from throughout the globe, including in Africa and uh, in nations in the Middle East, uh, Central Asia, etc. So the charity has really grown. And for example, now we have over 6,000 members on our mail-out list, and that's grown from probably around 50 initially. And it's a bit of a s- snowball effect, Christoph, as more countries and more nations know about us. And the numbers increase very significantly. So that's really in a nutshell uh, what we, how we've developed over the course of the last 10 years. And I've got to say, most of it has happened in the last five years. My greatest respect. I mean, this is super impressive, I have to say. And I think what you have explained to us now, you are the best role model for education and what it can lead into, right? I mean, this uh, what your parents invested in is now really paying back for the world. And uh, it's super amazing, I have to say. Yeah, We are very honored and happy to support you, radiology across borders. 
I also believe we share a similar purpose. You said clever technology. I say we drive innovations to help people live healthier and longer. Also on the grounds of our sustainability commitments, access to care is a fundamental part of it. And I think you are a great representation of this uh, goal. What is, in my point of view, when we talk clever technologies or innovation, what is key is not only virtual education and all the e-trainings and what is available, but also remote technologies. We have established now, you know, we can remote control our diagnostic modalities like MR or CT, but we can also go towards um, robots. We are also going towards robots. You might know about uh, our Corindus branch where we really develop intravascular robots, which can be potentially remote controlled, which is also of great help when you want to ensure access to care in underserved countries. Yeah. Again, very impressive what you are doing. Let me ask another question against the backdrop of your exciting purpose. What are the priority challenges in terms of access to healthcare in developing nations? And what are the projects you are currently focused on? That's such a good question and a broad question in terms of you know, the priorities, because there are so many priorities in developing nations. There are so many deficiencies which we can help in. Mm -hmm. But I guess there are two that are fundamentally important, two priorities, and they are based around resourcing the developing nations and educating. So let me give you some idea of why I think they are priorities. If we look at Australia, we have on average, or it's been worked out, we're around 3.5 physicians per 1,000 Australians. If we look at Ethiopia and Ghana, so closer to um, Europe, it's about 0.1, okay, 0.1 mm. physician per 1,000 people. And Cambodia, in our part of the world, it's 0.2. So there's a real shortage of resources, and that equates to difficulty in delivering programs. And so one arm of what we do is helping with the resources. The other arm of what we do um, is education. Now, unfortunately, in most of the developing nations we go to, particularly in the Pacific, there are no schools which enable them to finish their training to the point where they can then go the next step. And I'll give you an example of that. When I, when I went to Fiji, which is a, an amazing nation, and the doctors there are excellent doctors. When I went there 10 years ago, there were nine registrars. Of those nine registrars, one of them has become a consultant. The other seven or eight have either left the scheme or are still registrars. Now, there's no way to take them to the next level. And without that, you really can't deliver the quality of care that you should be able to. So we address education through a whole range of projects. Every month we have two webinars which go from Australia and New Zealand, and now we're bringing in international lecturers. And that lecture covering a whole range of topics goes globally throughout the world. So at the last count, the last webinar, we had 58 nations dialing into that. So not just the 12 that we go to, but we have nations throughout the globe. So those sessions really act as a, as a, a collegial interaction every month. We send radiologists to nations to provide hands-on training. So we've done 42 site visits with radiologists mm -hmm. all the way up to Mongolia and nations between Mongolia and Australia. All of those sessions are self-funded, so the radiologists pay their own way. But I can tell you they get an incredible sense of satisfaction from what they're doing because they just see how much difference it is making for these nations. 
We have an education project called Vital, where we send sonographers to developing nations in groups of four and six, and they provide uh, training in detection of cancer and in obstetrics and gynecology, so really important maternal health issues. We have another project where we send mammographers and radiologists to nations to provide teaching in mammography, because that's the other arm of breast work, which is so vitally important. We're starting a project this year, which we will be doing online, unfortunately, due to COVID, where we send pediatric radiologists and pediatric sonographers to nations to provide teaching in the fundamentals of pediatric radiology. We have a library online, which has a huge amount of resources, which is available free for anyone throughout the globe. And we have a whole range of other projects tapping into education. But the most important is our international certificate. Now, we, in collaboration with the University of British Columbia, and I'd like to indulge here and say a special thank you to Professor Bruce Forster, who's the head of UBC Radiology, and Professor Pete Tonseth and Dr. Catherine Daros. The three of them, in collaboration with our RAB radiologists and the Royal College of Radiologists, E-Integrity, have designed a one-year online international certificate in radiology, covering all the fundamentals of radiology. Now, the intention of this program is to teach anyone in developing nations the core material they need to be able to practice radiology and treat their communities. So it's not the high-level stuff, it's the core stuff. And this is all done online, Christoph, but it includes not just didactic knowledge. Each week we have a webinar with all the students. We have virtual conferences. We have video tutorials. And all of this has worked to delivering a really good international certificate. And we really do believe this is going to transform the way that radiology is done in a lot of developing nations. And I'll give you an example. We have a student, Mele. She comes from a small Pacific nation called New, which has 1,700 people. That's the whole population. And she is solely responsible for radiology, solely. And there's no training program for her. She has attained her skills from a lot of reading, but this will hopefully be the finishing school for her before she takes that next step up. And there are a lot of melees throughout student brief, and this is where I think we can really make a difference. Now, if I could use the opportunity also to say that these, this type of program can be easily done in any specialty. You know, it can be done in cardiology. It can be done in surgery. It can be done in respiratory medicine. We have done this now and we know how to do it. And we're very happy to, to liaise with anyone in any specialty who would like to do a similar thing in their subspecialty because it will make such a difference. And in terms of the other arm, which was the providing resources, we have a whole range of projects such as our TIDES project, where we provide second opinions to developing nations. So we have a group of 30 radiologists who provide two weeks a, a year, pro bono time, looking at imaging. Mm-hmm. And for example, in one of the nations, the Cook Islands, they don't have any radiologists. So you can imagine what difference this is making to both treating their patients, but also working out what patients need to stay in the Cook Islands and which need to go to either Australia or New Zealand. We have mentorship programs and other infrastructure programs. So in total, we have 13 projects running simultaneously, mm-hmm. and they all work towards resourcing and educating our recipient nations. A clear call, and I hope it will be heard uh, to the other faculties to really take you as a role model. And it's great to hear that you can also scale this, that you can conceive 
scalability in this exciting model. It's super interesting to hear this from you based on your years of experience in developing countries. Yeah? Radiology across borders is an impressive example how to tackle the challenges the world is facing here. One major challenge is, in my point of view, that improving health service coverage and health outcomes, as you said, depends really on availability, affordability and acceptability of health and care workers, in particular in developing countries, in my point of view. Yeah. On the same token, we have not enough doctors and you are really helping here. And at the same time, we have a strong population growth. So. What struck me in terms of numbers, when we also think about the sustainability development goals, is that over 18 million additional health workers are needed by 2030. If you think through this, your model gets more and more important and also your call to other faculties to step in as well and to help is only the right approach to it in my point of view. Yeah? But it also needs investments from public and private sectors in healthcare worker education which is important and of course we are collaborating here as well intensively to drive our educational programs forward thank you very much uh, suresh another question in my mind we are often asked whether we want to replace radiologists with artificial intelligence ai our answer is clearly no we strive to create the best possible support for radiologists through technology and therefore ai is part of our answer From your unique experience, what's your vision of the role of an AI-supported radiologist in the future? How do you see this? Christoph, that's a really excellent question. It's, it's something that is a, what we call a hot-button topic <laughs> in Australia. You know, it's something that radiologists are you know, all talking about and with a certain degree of trepidation amongst some in terms of how it could compromise their work as it is presently. From a personal point of view, I think... AI has going to have real positives, but it's also going to have a certain degree of negative for radiologists. Now, if I might start off with the, the negatives, the bread and butter for radiologists at the moment is chest X-ray and CT. They're the two things that probably are done the majority of by radiologists um, in Australia and probably globally. Now, we have artificial intelligence coming in and providing excellent, in many cases, feature recognition for a lot of pathologies in the chest and now the brain. Mm -hmm. Now, it probably is not yet at that stage of a radiologist, but sometime in the future, it could very well be. Now, when you have a machine that can do something that effectively at probably a fraction of the cost, it will have an impact in terms of the resourcing of radiology departments and the number of radiologists that are required. So I think there's going to be a shift into what radiologists will be doing in the future. And I think there's going to be a greater emphasis on research and a greater emphasis on clinical engagement. And one of my areas of interest is radiomics and extracting information from imaging and working out things that we can't see as radiologists. Now, my area of expertise is oncology and body work, and we're doing that. At the moment, we're seeing that with the working out of what uh, tumors are, tumor types in, for example, renal cell cancers prognosticating in terms of you know, how a patient's going to respond using relevant clinical data and combining it with imaging data. Now, that's really exciting. That's, that's going to take radiology to an area 
we haven't experienced before. And that's going to lead to excellent patient outcomes. So I think we're going to be seeing a shift in terms of what radiologists do on a routine basis. And I think there will be a greater emphasis on research and clinical work. We can't forget also the patient. And when we have the ability to get through that backlog of imaging that's building up in developed nations and developing nations because we don't have enough radiologists presently, that can only be a positive, a real positive for patients. You know, patients don't want to be waiting a month to have their mammogram read. You know, that, that can make such a difference. Now, patients don't want to be waiting six weeks for a CT scan to be read. You, know, you, you can miss the boat with significant pathologies. So there is a real opportunity here to, to lead to better outcomes for patients as well. And I think that will occur. But I think we just need to, to what we say is manage with kid gloves, but gently the transition, because there are a lot of radiologists who are concerned about what this could mean to their bread and butter incomes. If I could also make this point too, and coming from the perspective of the charity, where I think AI is going to make a tremendous difference is for developing nations. Going back to our closest neighbor, Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea's got close to 9 million people, Christoph, and they only have three radiologists, three, three trained radiologists. Now, there's no way you can provide care to the level that's required with such a dearth of quality radiologists. Now, talking to my colleagues in the Pacific, the ones that we support, there is a general desire to have AI in those nations, you know, and there is an incredible opportunity to help those nations. And we're already looking into two projects where we will be looking at partnering with vendors to deliver these. Now, AI for the charity is the next stage of our growth, next stage of our evolution. Because we, we really believe we can make such a difference. Now, we don't have the resources in terms of radiologists to do this, but it's ready-made for artificial intelligence. And I would encourage providers to really think of developing nations as both a philanthropic possibility in a very big way and also a commercial opportunity. Because at the end of the day, in developed nations, we have a lot of radiologists, but in developing nations, there's a real dearth. So really, I think AI is... is has tremendous possibilities. I really do. But I think it's the way it has to be managed. Could I put a question to you as well? I know that this is an expert in this industry in terms of AI, and I've been keeping up to date with your posts and your social media. Where do you think AI sits or how do you think it can help radiologists moving forward? I mean, first of all, you are confirming what I strongly believe. Radiology is an innovation engine driving this innovation. And uh, I fully agree. I think we are thinking here alike. AI has a huge potential in the field of radiology, but not only in radiology. I see this in different levels, let's say. It can be very helpful, as we already have proven it, on the modality level, automating modalities. If you think a little bit in terms of point-of-care modalities, easy to be installed in such countries, If it helps, let's say, less qualified personnel to come to standardized outcomes, this is absolutely one domain of AI. I believe we can really simplify this entire MR, CT and what have you examinations and can help the people there, right? Secondly, it is the level of quality assurance, automated quality assurance. It's reading, as you explained, it's not about only shortening the reading time, but also help reading and seeing the characteristics of findings in images. 
where you might have, because of a lack of physicians or maybe learning physicians, also not a reproducible result or an adequate clinical outcome. So here it can definitely help as well. And in general, I think you can broaden this field. And when you look, for example, to tumor boards, we are heavily invested in developments where we help, for example, a tumor board where you have different faculties attending with a meaningful representation of data. And then let's take prostate cancer because this was one of our first implementation in the so-called pathway companion. It is showing you the longitudinal data. It is showing you imaging data, in vitro data, genomic data, and so on. And it's calculating pirate score. It's uh, giving you a risk assessment. It's providing you with therapeutic recommendation as individualized as possible based on guidelines. So this is all driven by AI. And of course, I don't like the buzzwords too much, but big data. This is why I'm saying I think we are thinking very much alike here. Yeah? And for me, radiology in the future is the center of data navigation. It's getting closer to the clinical faculties by doing so. It's no longer, you know, that radiology, they, they give, they look at images and they give back the, you know, suspicion or the diagnosis. It's, by the way, also data protection, data security, all these aspects around AI and, and data management are playing also a role. So let's say it's a navigator through the data and uh, information technology, in my point of view, in a hospital or in a provider setup. That's how I see it. That's the angle that I'm coming from in terms of the, where it sits and helping in the overall clinical management. And I think that's, that's an exciting area. And moving on away from just a simple chest X-ray, it's the, the newer technologies where I think it can really make a huge difference moving forward. Radiology across borders is a compelling example, in my point of view, of how to support developing nations build their capabilities to provide access to care. What else needs to be done in the future to ensure access to healthcare worldwide? How can others, like different medical disciplines, we talked about it, or organizations like the WHO, learn from your organization, Suresh? If I answer the first part of that question in terms of what else do we need to address healthcare, I think it really links in very much to what we're talking about at the moment, and that's technologies. Where I think we can really make a difference is if we address and we tackle diseases early on, okay, before that they get their heels dug in and they become incurable. Now, I'll give you an example, Christoph, and that is diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So that's increasing very quickly in developing nations, and 80% of mortality from those two occur in developing nations, okay, and also often impacts the younger generations who are obviously crucial to the economies. Now, if we can diagnose that at an early stage, I think we can treat it. Now, if you go to the Pacific or to any of our nations that we frequently visit in Asia, all the nations, uh, people have got mobile phones. They're walking around with mobile phones. There are applications that can be used to connect with those mobile phones, to work out basic things like hypertension, blood sugar, all these things. We should be doing our best to combine technology 
with medicine through these applications to be able to detect these diseases earlier. Because I really do think that we'll be able to have a real impact on treating them at an early stage than if we leave them to a later stage. And another example which ties in with artificial intelligence is breast cancer. Now, breast cancer is the most common uh, malignancy worldwide amongst women. And unfortunately, 70% of mortality is in developing nations, 70%. Whereas if you take these stats in developed nations, we have a 90% five-year survival. And I think the reason why that the mortality is so high in developing nations is twofold. One is obviously less treatments, but secondly is no screening. There are no screening programs. So when patients present, they often have these fungating malignancies. Now, in a developed nation such as Germany or Australia, we have the option for chemotherapy or radiotherapy. That doesn't exist in developing nations. It's too expensive in, in the majority of them. But if we can detect breast cancer early on, there is definitely a role for surgery. Surgery is readily available. Artificial intelligence, I think, will have an incredibly important role here. If we can get artificial intelligence rolled out into developing nations, just imagine the impact that we could have in detecting these tumors early and therefore potentially treating them early. So this is one point that I think we're ready to attack. We're ready to tackle through screening programs, through technologies that already exist and through artificial intelligence, we should really make an effort in combining all those things and tackling nation by nation screening programs. And I think that's really a fundamentally important part. In terms of what other organizations can learn from, from us, I think there are a few key points. First of all, what we've done at Radiology Across Borders can be done in any specialty. Really, this alludes to what I said before in cardiology or general medicine or whatever. People, specialists in developed nations want to do this. They really do. What I found when I set up the charity, I had a couple of people who said to me, look, it's not going to go anywhere. But they were really wrong because there have been 100 radiologists who have come on board. And the common theme that they often say is, we always wanted to do this, but there was never an organization ready and set up for us to do this. Now, it's something that if you get it established, I can guarantee you there'll be others who want to support it in your subspecialty. And the other important thing to realize is that you don't need a lot of money to do this. For the first five years, we didn't have any income stream, nothing at all. For the second five years, now I'm going to put a little plug in here, and not only because it's a Siemens podcast, but without Siemens Health and Ears, we really would have struggled back in 2016. We were at a crossroads where we, we had no income. And I saw the general manager of Siemens Health and Ears in Australia, David Brown. And I was very fortunate to meet David. He, he took to this like a duck to water, as we say. And the whole of the Siemens unit in Australia and New Zealand have been fully supporting this. And this has grown now to the Asia Pacific with Stephen Bell and their team. We've had exemplary support from them and our other major partners in IMED Radiology Network and the Australasian Sonographers Association, but we haven't required a lot of money. And in the last five years, we've been probably working on a budget of around 100,000. Now it's going to grow as we get bigger, but I just want to impress on those who are thinking about this. You don't need to have a lot of money. All you need is committed individuals who really are passionate about the course and also use technology. That is so important. We do so much through platforms such as Teams, Citrix, a whole range of different platforms. We have a Noodle platform. 
we use common technologies that are clever technologies and we're able to deliver what we do. And the other important thing to realize too is don't make your organization just an organization. Make it a family. We call the RAB organization the RAB family. We call the recipient nations a part of the family. And that's really important because the members, the countries that are involved, really feel like they have an engagement with the group, that they are part of the group. Now, I'll give you an example. We have four Canadian medical students who Mm -hmm. have been absolutely integral in getting up the international certificate up and running. They've done a tremendous amount of work and they're incredibly skilled. One of them recently got onto the training scheme for radiology in Newfoundland in Canada. And we put that all over our social media channels because we were so excited. And we do that often. We promote not just the projects, but the individuals, the people who are doing the work. And I really do believe that with a charity, you really need to make it an organization that's a family that really represents not just the projects and the nations, but the people. And if you do that, you will get a organization who really wants to make a difference. And I think that's being reflected by the work we're achieving. So really very much achievable for anyone who wants to do this. I mean, this is amazing, uh, Suresh, yeah, and it confirms a little bit. I think we have similarities, right? I mean, first, I would also say Siemens Helsinius feels often as a family. It's a big company uh, with more than 60,000 people now after the variant teaming up, but it still feels like a family. And what you are also confirming is how important purpose is, because purpose can really lead into passion or purpose together with passion make things possible, which are typically not possible, right? So I think you are a great example for this. And you are also confirming to me that healthcare is really teamwork. Yeah, what I learned through the pandemic or what we learned through the pandemic is also very much healthcare and research, clinical science needs global collaboration Mm -hmm. and not verticalization as some politicians on the globe try to convey, right, the more vertical you are, the better you you <laughs> can live. I think it's really about this global collaboration and partnerships, as you said. And uh, again, I know that many people are highly engaged in supporting you, many Siemens employees, health seniors. So it's the purpose. We share this common purpose and this makes really the difference, right? Coming to an end, maybe a last question, which is also, if you allow Suresh a little bit, meant to be a private question. After the pandemic now, this requires that many of us have been working from home offices for more than one and a half years, roughly. And we have been privately restricted professionally. So how have you been affected privately and professionally by this pandemic? Christoph, I think both of us were starting to be doctors back in the 90s, I think. Uh, reading your bio. <laughs> I think true. we started around the same time, around 92, 93. Can you imagine how problematic it would have been if this had hit back then without the technologies to enable us to do what we do from home now? Not having the, the communications, it would have, I think we would, the world would have been struggling like the Spanish flu back in 1918. Australia has been impacted slightly differently. Um, being an island, I guess that's one of the benefits, I guess, Initially, we were impacted in terms of we had a lockdown. So we had about six weeks, six to eight weeks where everyone was working from home. And that was new for a lot of people and new for me as well. And I think a lot of people 
grew to either hate it or to love it. And I was reading something the other day that now in Australia, around 40% of people do at least one to two days of work from home, whereas previously it was around 10 to 15%. So an astronomical increase, really, we think about over 100% increase. From a personal point of view, I was angling to working more from home anyway, because I'm pure diagnostics now and do research, education, teaching. So it's ready made for working from home. Personally, I actually have found it pretty good. Work-life balance for me has been much better. I find that I'm much more productive, but I do enjoy my day a week where I do go into the practices. But I do see that there is a real requirement to go in as well at times. You know, there are meetings. Uh, Face-to-face cannot be completely replaced, but I do think there has been some benefits. From a private point of view, it's actually quite funny you ask this question because we have been probably in the last few months really in terms of going out and doing things really unaffected, but we've had the Delta, Delta virus come into the country in the last few days, in the last week. So we actually have three of the states now who are, who are starting to get some cases and we're all restricted. So we're still able to go out and do everything, but holidays are affected, borders are closed now. I think we're probably a little bit more, I guess, vigilant when it comes to hitting the cases really quickly and hard. But it has impacted in the last week on us. And and I think this is something that is going to be a problem in terms of moving forward. Now, we talk about this being a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, but as you probably know, we had SARS-CoV-1 15 years ago, and then we had MERS. And the only reason that they were different from this pandemic, in my opinion, was that people had symptoms. They you knew who had the you had the disease because they were very symptomatic. This one we don't. You know, you often don't have symptoms, and so it can be passed from one person to another. And I guess the point that I make in that statement is that I think we really need to be cognizant that maybe we are entering a period, and I don't want to be a doomsday person, but maybe we are entering a period where these things are going to become more more problematic moving forward. And you know, I know the global issues of climate change are becoming very important, and I think we can tie this all in together with the deforestation, bringing animals and humans closer together, and making zoonotic infections more likely to be spread from you know, animals to humans. So unfortunately, I think you know, we need to be prepared for more, more episodes like this. Hopefully they won't occur, but realistically we could. But I think you know, this, this pandemic has taught us a lot and has taught us to embrace new technologies and taught us to embrace things that can bring the world closer together, which doesn't involve necessarily traveling long distances. And once again, I think that's what the charity does as well with all our teaching. And yes, we have all been impacted, but hopefully we've learned how to mitigate that to a certain extent. Thank you for sharing, uh, Suresh. And uh, also here some similarities. I mean, nearly all our people worked for a very long time from home. You are right. Yeah, Clever technologies, to use your term, have helped significantly to make this possible, right? The entire field of digitalization has been driven dramatically. So that's, let's say, aside from the devastating effects of this pandemic, some opportunities we, we all benefit from. And I personally enjoy that, you know, I don't need to deal with delayed flights or overcrowded airports anymore. And you're right. Yeah, we don't. We still need to travel and I want to travel because it's about different cultures and meeting people in 3D, not in 2D. But you don't need to travel all the time and you can reduce it, which is not only uh, helpful for your personal comfort, but also for sustainability reasons, because it's also helping the CO2 footprint and other effects. Yeah. 
What I personally uh, found very striking in terms of leadership is that we all learned to get into empathy with each other. On one hand, yes, we are all performance driven. We all want to get to our targets and so on. But we have learned to really listen to the other and we respect human beings much more in my point of view than beforehand. So this entire uh, field of empathy, if I may name it like this, this is a great learning for me that we talk much more on eye height with each other and with much more respect, maybe compared to before the pandemic. Super exciting. I could continue this dialogue for another hour or so. I'm afraid we need to come to an end, but I really want to thank you for introducing us to radiology across borders as a charity, which is impressing me very, very much. And again, we are super honored to support you. And I hope that many have listened to you and also other faculties have listened to you that we can use this podcast maybe to also trigger some scaling of your ideas. But I sincerely want to thank you and I wish you really all the success to help people and uh, broadening access to care into underserved and developing countries. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Christoph. And I'd also like to thank yourself and uh, Siemens Health and Ears for the opportunity to do this podcast and once again for the exemplary support that the organization has given to the charity over the years. Thank you. My pleasure. Wrapping up today's episode, Dr. Suresh De Silva spoke about the efforts of his organization, Radiology Across Borders, and how they are helping developing nations gain much-needed access to care through support and innovation. We also heard about the importance of AI in the field of radiology and beyond and how it has the potential to ease the unique challenges they face. It's clear from this conversation that the more we embrace the development and use of technologies like artificial intelligence in healthcare, the better we can serve everyone within the global community. A big thank you to Dr. Suresh Da Silva and to all of our listeners. This has been another episode of Shaping the Future of Healthcare from Siemens Health and Ears. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. <laughs>